V8 is the JavaScript engine that runs Chrome. Every popular website makes heavy use of JavaScript, and V8 manages the execution environment of that JavaScript code. The code that processes in your browser can run faster or slower depending on how hot the code path is. What hot means is if a certain line of code is executed frequently, that code might be optimized to run faster. V8 is, behind the scenes, doing all this work in your browser all the time, evaluating the code in your different tabs and determining how to manage that runtime in memory. As V8 is observing your code and analyzing it, V8 needs to allocate resources in order to determine what code to optimize. This process can be quite memory-intensive and can add significant overhead to the memory of Chrome. Ross McElroy is an engineer at Google, where he worked on a project called V8 Lite. The goal of V8 Lite is to significantly reduce the execution overhead of V8. Ross joins the show to talk about JavaScript memory consumption and his work on V8 Lite. And we've done some great shows on JavaScript in the past. If you want to find those old episodes, you can go to softwaredaily.com and look for JavaScript episodes. If you're interested in writing about JavaScript, we have a new writing feature. You can check it out by going to softwaredaily.com slash write. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. V8 is a JavaScript engine that runs Chrome. Explain what the purpose of a JavaScript engine is. The JavaScript engine is there to run all the JavaScript, and JavaScript's the coding language of the web. Um, it's what allows developers to do programmatic things on the web. So moving buttons about or responding when those button clicks happen, or maybe animating. And so the V8 engine's what powers that all underneath. And you've spent some time researching operating systems, and my sense is that a JavaScript engine is something that is so complicated, it borders on the complexity of an operating system. How does operating system design compare to browser design? Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly I would compare the Chrome browser to an operating system. It has so many components that are similar. In a previous life, I worked on the on the Blink scheduler, which is part of Chrome, and so it's got a scheduling engine just like the operating system. And then VA itself, we're doing memory management, we're doing garbage collection, we're doing compilation of um, jitted code. There's lots of components in there and definitely feels like operating system work. That's really interesting. We're going to talk about V8 Lite today, but before we get into V8 Lite, I'd like to know a little bit about your prior work. What parts of the browser and V8 did you work on prior to V8 Lite? Sure. So I'm part of the, the Chrome mobile team here in London. So we've been concentrating for a long time on memory usage. So when I started on that team, we were optimizing Chrome's memory usage to get it to fit on mobile, low-end mobile Android devices, um, where Chrome had previously been on big desktop beefy machines, trying to fit it in mobile, involved lots of optimizations to shave memory off it. I then worked on the, the scheduler in Chrome, where we tried to reorder tasks, and so taking more important tasks and moving them to the front of the task queue, and taking idle tasks and waiting until the, the Chrome browser is overall idle before executing those tasks. I then moved on to the V8 team, and on V8 we 
started a big project to build a new interpreter. Previous to that point, V8 had always just-in-timed all JavaScript to machine code. And we realized that on mobile devices, that machine code was a lot of memory. And often these functions weren't getting executed very often. And so we could save a lot of memory if we just compiled them to a compressed bytecode um, and interpreted them instead of executing them directly. So we built this interpreter initially. It might have only been for mobile devices, but it, it synergized really well with a new optimizing compiler we were building at the same time um, and simplified the whole pipeline. And so we, we ended up um, having a, a big project to which we called Ignition and Turbofan, which was replacing completely the old compilation pipeline, um, which was full code gen and crankshaft, uh, replacing it with Ignition and Turbofan, where Ignition is the bytecode interpreter and Turbofan is the new optimizing compiler. And so after that, um, we've been working on various compilation optimizations here in London and the V8 Lite project. All right. Well, let's talk a bit about memory management because that directly corresponds to the work you did on V8 Lite. How much memory does Chrome use on a machine? I think it depends very much on A, what your machine is and B, what type of user you are. There are a lot of particularly tech users who have maybe hundreds of, of tabs open all the time. Um, I'm one of them. And in these ex these situations, Chrome's going to take a lot of your system memory. In fact, most of the time, all my applications are sitting in Chrome. They're running JavaScript applications in a tab. And so it's not really surprising that Chrome's taking all that memory on desktop. Um, where it becomes a problem is on these low-end phones where you really have much less memory. And so th things we're thinking about here are maybe phones that have 512 megabytes of RAM, which might sound reasonable, but then you have to remember that the hardware takes 100 megabytes, the operating system takes 100 megabytes, other applications take 100 megabytes. And really, at the end of the day, Chrome ends up having about 100 megabytes of memory left to do all of its operations. So that's like rendering the pictures, laying out the page, and doing JavaScript execution at the same time. So it depends where you're sitting, but on a mobile device, a typical web page, we would expect maybe 30 to 40 megabytes um, in the renderer process, um, which is the process that's displaying the tab. And of that, maybe 40 to 60% would be um, the V8 JavaScript heap. So it's V8 is a quite sizable proportion of that memory usage, generally. How does the runtime for Chrome on desktop compare to Chrome on mobile in, in terms of memory footprint? So the, we have done a lot more optimization work on mobile to fit the general cases, to compress the general cases. So the memory usage is generally lower. There's other aspects as well. On mobile, you generally are viewing one tab and the operating system behind the scenes. So in Chrome, each tab is a separate operating system process. And on Android, uh, the operating system can kill processes when it's running low on memory. And it'll do that without um, interacting with the main Chrome process, uh, particularly. That sounds like a problem. It can be a problem, yeah. Um, but in some sense, it's, it's kind of useful for us because we can create those tabs and then leave it to the operating system, we give it some hints mm. as to which tabs are important and might be switched back to. But we can leave it to the operating system to kind of um, garbage collect those tabs um, as they go. And so that typically scales much more 
widely depending on the phone. So if you have a high-end 8 gigabyte of RAM device phone, then you'll probably find if you switch between your last four, five, maybe 10 tabs, they're all still there. Whereas if you have a lower end one gigabyte phone, you switch to a couple of tabs back and you see the whole tab reloading. And that's because the process has been killed in the background and Chrome needs to reload the web page. So the memory usage, you know, we learn in software engineering school or computer science school consists of the stack and the heap. Is V8 mostly, or the, or the Chrome browser, is it mostly consuming stack or heap? It's, it's mostly heap. And when we talk about heap, we have slightly, di- we have probably more categorizations than just stack and heap. So there's definitely some stack memory. Um, that's generally kept relatively small, um, but it depends if we spin up a lot of uh, threads, then each thread needs to have a stack. So that might take some memory. And then there's heap. And in V8, we kind of partition that between what we would call maybe native heap, which is your kind of typical C++ heap, which you would allocate with malloc or new, um, manage that memory yourself as you're coding. And then what we would call the managed heap, which is the garbage collected JavaScript heap um, where all JavaScript objects live. And that has a very different feel because the garbage collector is in charge of collecting that memory um, freeing up the memory as it goes. And typically that's the largest part of memory for us um, in V8. And it's one of the more substantial parts of memory in Chrome overall as well. Tell me about some of the objects that might make up the heap. If I'm browsing a typical website where I've got a website open, I'm on hackernews.com and I've got three or four other Chrome tabs open, what is in my heap? on Chrome? Lots and lots of things. Um, So I'll start with the things that are in V8 and then talk about some other things that are in Chrome overall. So on on V8's managed heap, the garbage collected heap, you'll have all your JavaScript objects. So for example, any functions, JavaScript functions that have been compiled to bytecode, that will live in the the managed heap. Um, We also have metadata, which is where V8 Lite actually came in, where we keep track of what those functions look like, what type of objects those functions have seen and those types of things, um, and use that to optimize the code later. And then you have your actual objects. So if you create arrays or strings or things like that in JavaScript, then that all also lives in the in the managed heap. You then have what's called the DOM, um, which lives outside of V8. This is in the, the renderer engine in Blink. That's called the document object model. And so if you know your HTML, then that's your your kind of elements. So maybe your div elements and your image elements and things like that. And they're represented in the DOM, which is also garbage collected by a separate garbage collector in Chrome called Oilpan. And then you have lots and lots of other things. So um, you'll have your images on your site and they will be in both the kind of compressed form, the JPEG form, but we also need to decompress it to show it on the screen. So they'll be in the decompressed forms as well. There'll be the HTML source for the actual web page that came in, the CSS, all the objects that are needed to process that. And then, of course, Chrome needs to display the stuff on the screen. So I think a large part of the memory ends up being the the GPU command buffer, so the commands that Chrome is sending to the GPU to draw things onto the screen. Now, to take a different approach to understanding the V8 runtime 
I'd like to spend a little time talking about what happens when code is compiled in V8 or you know I know there's interpretation and compilation I believe that the javascript code is turned into javascript bytecode and then the bytecode is eventually executed on the underlying machine or translated from bytecode to the underlying machine code can you give me a brief overview of the compilation and runtime of JavaScript code that's executing in my browser? Sure. So what will happen is, um, in simplified form, Blink, the rendering engine in, in Chrome, will come across a script tag, which um, is some JavaScript to be run. And so it sends that URL, well, this, the data, the JavaScript source to V8. So now we have... Um, a string of JavaScript source. We then run that through what we call the parser, which will take the JavaScript and turn it into a kind of machine representation, which we call an abstract syntax tree, which is just a way of us understanding what the the actual JavaScript um, semantically means and in and, and a tree form that makes it easy to do some compilation on it. So that's the output of the parser. And that feeds into the, the bytecode generator, which is the first part of the ignition interpreter. So the bytecode generator will walk that abstract syntax tree and generate bytecodes for each of those operations. So uh, an example might be you have a function which has A plus B and returns that. And so the bytecode interpreter will, will generate bytecodes for loading the variable A loading the variable B, and then doing a JavaScript addition on those variables, and then returning the result. And so there'll be a couple of bytecodes there, and that will be the bytecode for that function. Then once we have the, the functions available, um, we can start executing the scripts. And we do that through Ignition, uh, the interpreter. And so we'll execute a function, and the Ignition interpreter will start reading that bytecode um, kind of bytecode by bytecode. So read the, the first bytecode and it has a bunch of little snippets of machine code which performs the operations for each of the bytecodes. So for example, there'll be a snippet of code for the add operation, the add bytecode. And um, when we see that add bytecode, we jump to that snippet of code and we perform the operation. And these are typically because they're JavaScript operations they're not as simple as you might think. It's not just an add machine code because, of course, JavaScript to the plus operator, you can add strings, you can add integers, you can add doubles, and you can add all kinds of things. You can add um, objects together and you need to coerce those objects into some kind of type that can be added together like an integer or a string. And so the interpreter typically does the has inline code for the typical operations, adding integers or adding strings, and then it'll call out into the, the runtime to do the more complicated things. So that's your kind of interpretation of the script. And as you're executing that, we, we build up some, some knowledge of what those operations are. So for example, in this add bytecode, we have a, a side table, which is called a type, type feedback vector. And in there, we store some metadata about what we've seen in those add, adding operations. Is it only been integers that we've add, added in this function or are we adding strings or a combination of everything? Once a function gets hot enough, 
we'll decide to optimize it with our optimizing compiler, which is Turbofan. And Turbofan will, will take the bytecode and this tight feedback vector, and it kind of glues it all together and tries to, to make an, a kind of optimized form of code. So if you had only seen integer additions in that operation there, then Turbofan will kind of speculatively assume that you're only ever going to see integer operations in the future and generate some machine code that's kind of targeted specifically for that and can be a lot faster because of that. So that's kind of a, a quick flow through the whole pipeline. That's a great description. And one concept I want to focus on a little bit more is the idea of a hot code path. And this is the idea that you have different pieces of code that are executing in your website. And some of those pieces of code are going to be executed more often than others. You want those pieces of code to be optimized for. You want them to be identified as a hot code path so that you can optimize for them. And you touched on a few things there. I think one is that the inlining of code is one way to, to speed up code. And then another is just the putting it through an optimizing compiler. Can, can you just talk a little bit more about if you've identified in your JavaScript engine that a piece of code is is hot, it's going to be executed frequently, what are the things you can do to speed up that code? I think this would be a whole whole talk on itself. But there's various things. So one of the the biggest things that typically speeds up code on real websites is identifying what we would call the, the shape of the objects. Um, so say you have an object that you've created in JavaScript and it has different fields in that object, A and B. And if you know what the object looks like, then if you're optimizing a function that, that reads values off of that object, then you can do a much more optimal job. So the real problem here is that in JavaScript, objects are, are dictionaries in a sense. Like there, there's no strong class hierarchy like you would have in Java. And so we have to do very kind of, if, if we were doing the naive approach, we'd have to do very slow operations to look up properties in each of these objects. If you, if you were doing the naive approach, you would maybe need to treat it like a dictionary, like a hash table and looking up exactly which where each property sits in that object and um, then reading out the actual one that you, you want. But if you know the structure of the object, if you know that all of the objects of this particular type were created with A in the first um, field of the object's layout, then you can just read that directly. And then if you know even more what type of objects A generally is, if it's a number or something else, then you can propagate that knowledge down and optimize code even better based on that. So you can then later um, optimize away various checks that you would need to do in JavaScript and kind of turn the code into much more simple looking code from the machine point of view. The reason we're having this conversation is I wanted to talk to you about a project called Light Mode for V8. When we're talking about making a lighter version of V8, are we talking about it in terms of making the code run faster, more memory efficiently? What are the goals of the V8 Lite project? Sure. So the goal of Lite mode 
was to make V8 more memory efficient. We started the project looking at really low-end Android phones and realizing that the user experience of Chrome there would be a lot better if we used less memory, even if that meant we couldn't do all the optimizations we might normally do in V8 to speed up JavaScript execution. For example, generating this optimized code that I was just talking about. And so we started down a road of like seeing all the, the we, we looked at how memory was being used by V8 and in the heap. And we identified maybe 30 to 40% of the heap was being used to store metadata about functions to allow V8 to later speed up the execution of those functions. And we thought, well, if we cut that all out and then just see how fast V8 is, is it fast enough still for these low-end devices? And then see where we are. And the results were pretty promising. Like we could ease, we could cut these areas of memory usage out and websites still performed reasonably well. Um, JavaScript heavy benchmarks and things like that suffered quite a bit, but it was still seemed promising. And then we realized that we could actually turn, rather than taking all this memory out, we could, we could more um, optimally only allocate that memory when it was really needed. So we talked about it being more lazy. And so this is what the, the, the project evolved into a project for all devices, whereas it started as a project just for these low-end devices. And so it evolved into, well, can we take these optimizations and apply them everywhere by only lazily allocating uh, metadata when it's needed? And we ended up getting almost all the savings that we could get with the light mode, but we could apply it to all use cases. So desktops and high-end mobile devices are now getting the memory savings that we're doing with light mode and with none of the performance regressions. How many people were working on V8 Lite? There was three of us working on V8 Lite. And what's the process for managing such a project to reduce the memory consumption? How do you set goals and deadlines? So we kind of we started with a, a week-long hackathon just to see what we thought we could do, where we just carved bits out of V8 and, and did um, experiments where we, we measured particular parts of memory usage and saw how impactful it would be to remove those parts. So after that hackathon, we had a good sense of we could probably reduce V8's memory usage by about 20% if we're aggressive like this. Then we spent a couple of months actually making it possible to do this light mode specifically for low-end devices. And so there was, there was a number of things we knew we needed to do there. We kind of carved out three main projects as part of this light mode. Um, one was bytecode flushing, one was lazy feedback, and one was uh, lazy source positions. So with the lazy feedback, we knew that was going to be one of the, the bigger projects. And so we started with approach where it's actually no feedback vectors at all. And then we built onto a project where we lazily allocated them as we go. And so the no feedback case allowed us to kind of figure out all the places that V8 was depending on this feedback vector metadata that we were trying to remove or make lazy. And then once we had done that, then we could work on the, the process of making it lazily allocatable, optimizing the performance of it and optimizing the performance of V8 overall. So the process is basically like identifying those memory uh, impactful projects, carving out steps to allow us to make independent progress on those projects and identify 
where we feel like it's doing well. And then typically there's a period of optimization and kind of stabilization and things like that happens after that. So as you were figuring out that you could reduce the memory footprint by 20%, what kinds of tools were you using to get an understanding of the memory utilization of V8? How did you examine the runtime to understand that there was the room for this 20% gains in memory footprint? That's a good question. So we have reasonably good tooling to trace. Because V8's heap is garbage collected, the garbage collector needs to trace through all the objects in the heap to do a garbage collection. And so you can tweak that slightly and do a similar type of trace, but rather than doing garbage collection, you just collect data of what type of objects are there in the heap and how large each of them is. And so we have that tooling in V8. It's a kind of um, heap statistics tooling. And from that, you can work out different types of objects in the heap and you can aggregate them in different ways. And that was what we spent our time doing was kind of tracing heaps for typical websites and then aggregating the data. And the other important part of this is having realistic benchmarks. And so we have a set of, we call them system health benchmarks in Chrome, which are pre-recordings of um, websites, typical websites, and kind of scripted interaction with those websites. So you might have a news site and the scripted interaction is clicking an article, clicking back, reading it a bit, clicking another article, etc. So that gives us reasonable confidence that this is a kind of typical usage of Chrome. And then we can run our memory tooling on that and get some analysis of where memory is going when you're doing a typical interaction on a website. And as we talk about the areas for improvement, one area of extraneous memory was used during exception handling. You wrote about this in the article about uh, V8 Lite. You talked about it in a talk that you gave. In improving the extraneous memory around exception handling, you changed how you generate source positions. Can you explain what a source position is and how it's used? Sure. So yeah, so source positions are basically a mapping between the bytecode, which we are executing when we're executing the JavaScript, and the actual source code, the JavaScript source code that went into generating that bytecode. And so, of course, when an exception is thrown, we aren't interpreting the actual JavaScript source code itself. We only have the position in the bytecode that the, the exception was thrown at. And so we use these source position tables to kind of map back from that bytecode offset to a particular source code offset. And that's what allows us to show the um, line number and column number of the JavaScript that caused the, the, the exception and produce the full full symbolized stack trace in the console when you see an exception being thrown. Um, what we were doing originally was, well, to, to generate these source position tables, you need to have both the JavaScript and the bytecode available to you at the same time. And so the easiest time to do that is when you're generating the bytecode in the first case, because you can then say, okay, this is the JavaScript I'm generating bytecode for, and so that's the source position for that particular bytecode. But that means every function needs to have this source position table. And we realized that was taking a reasonably large chunk of memory. It was maybe about 30% the size of the bytecode itself. 
and most functions don't throw exceptions. And even if they do throw exceptions, they are probably caught by other code in a try-catch. And if the exception is caught in a try-catch, you don't actually need to map the positions back to JavaScript source code. It doesn't need to be symbolized. So with the lazy source position um, project, what we did was we turned off collecting these source positions when we we're compiling the code and instead only did it later when we were symbolizing the code. So it's a bit of a trade-off there. Like you're, you effectively need to recompile the function when you're symbolizing the stack trace. And so that can cause some slowdown, but it only causes slowdown in the cases where exceptions are being thrown. And so um, it shouldn't cause problems on real world pages. And we verified that it didn't cause any problems in uh, typical web pages, but it saved a fair amount of memory because we're, we're only doing it lazily and most functions don't need these sort of position tables. There is a data structure in V8 Memory Manager. I think you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier called a feedback vector. Can you explain what purpose a feedback vector serves? Sure. So the feedback vector is another table that goes along with the bytecode. And for certain bytecode operations, it's useful for V8 to know something about the types that um, that particular bytecode operation is expected to operate on. I gave the example before of the, the addition operator, and that's a, a typical one that's used where you might be adding integers or strings or other types of numbers. And if we can work out the typical operations that are being done at that particular function site, at that particular call site, then when we later go to optimize that code, we can optimize that operation to be very specific to the types that are expected. So um, doing a string concatenation, if that operation always sees strings, um, or doing an integer addition operation, if it's integer additions. And so this type feedback is very important for generating optimized code. But as we talked about before, we don't optimize all the code that we see. There's a lot of JavaScript code that's only run once or twice or during initialization or uncommon code paths. And so we were allocating these type feedback vectors for all the functions, even though most of the time we didn't use that data. And so with, with lazy feedback vector allocation, we, we deferred the allocation of these type feedback vectors until a later point where we thought it might be useful. And we thought we started collecting type feedback to then do the later optimization of those functions. Can you clarify how storing data about the type of a variable is useful for making a more efficient JavaScript engine? Sure. So I give an example of something which is actually useful for both optimized code and is, is useful for the interpreter. And this is an example of why we wanted to, to lazily allocate feedback vectors even for functions that might not end up being optimized because it speeds up execution of kind of warm functions. Um, and so that is um, when you're loading properties off of objects. So objects in JavaScript are very dynamic. Um, the class hierarchy is very dynamic itself. So it's not like um, JavaScript or C++ where you have an object and you know statically ahead of time generally that a particular field is a particular offset into an object, a particular. So you know that the object is eight bytes and the first four bytes are a 
pointer for field A and the second four bytes are an integer value that's in the object. Um, for JavaScript, you can create objects that have any number of properties. You can add and delete properties on those objects dynamically. And um, subtyping is done with a kind of a, a prototype form where you can you have a kind of prototype object that's attached to the object. And if you try to load a property from that object that's not on the object, then you need to look at the, prop, the prototype object. So actually loading one of these properties off of an object in the generic case, when you know nothing about the object itself, is very complicated. You need to look at, okay, how did V8 decide to represent this particular object? Then, okay, for this particular property, where is it stored? Is it in this object or is it somewhere up the property chain? And so just doing that generically is very slow. So what we do is we we collect, we we have what we call maps. Um, they're typically called shapes in other VMs. Um, or hidden classes. And they're kind of a, a descriptor of the layout of a particular object. So when we want to load a property off of one of these objects, um, we do all that work to work out where that property is for this particular type of object. And then in the feedback vector, we store, all right, we've seen this particular object map before, or this particular hidden class before. And the work we did to work out which property to load off that object told us that it's this particular offset on the object that you get in. So the next time you do that operation, you can very quickly just check, okay, does this object match the same type of um, hidden class that we've seen the last time that we, we did this operation? And typical web pages, this will be the case. You have a function that's probably operating on the same object types, and it's called monomorphism. And if that's the case, then we can just very quickly look up the data that we've already stored beforehand and load that property very quickly. So that allows the interpreter to load it very quickly, and then it allows the optimizing compiler to generate just-in-time code, machine code, um, that does that check, and then very optimally does the load of that property from the object. Um, without having to do all the other checks and asking the runtime how the structure of the object looks. And these feedback vectors are memory intensive, right? Like that was one of the recognitions of the V8 Lite project was that if you don't allocate the feedback vectors so aggressively, you can improve the performance of the browser. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's right. They typically took about 8% of V8's heap and... So if when we make them lazily allocated, I think we now take about 2% of the V8 heap. So um, we could reduce 6% of the V8 heap by just lazily allocating them when we need them. So what did that mean in practice, the lazy allocation versus the eager allocation? Um, so the easy, eager allocation would be allocating a type feedback vector for every function that gets compiled. The lazy allocation, what it means is so we use the same kind of profiling infrastructure as we would use for working out if a function is, is hot enough to be optimized. We use that same mechanism for working out whether the function should have a, a, a feedback vector allocated for it. Um, but we just do it much sooner. So maybe uh, it's roughly about 10 times sooner than we would um, optimize the function for optimized code. So for example, um, maybe after 10 executions of a function, we'll allocate a feedback vector. 
And then after 100 executions of that same function, we'll run it through TurboFan and generate optimized code for that function, depending on the size of the function. And if you do not allocate these feedback vectors eagerly, what's the result on the overall performance of the browser? So it was interesting. We thought that we would see quite a regression. And certainly when we didn't allocate the feedback vectors at all, um, we saw a very, very significant regression, but that was expected. But just doing this lazy allocation, we managed to get rid of all the regressions that we saw in benchmarks by optimizing and tuning some other parts of our, our runtime system. And for our telemetry, the system health benchmarks that I mentioned before, where we run real web pages, um, we actually saw improvements in performance in some cases. Um, typically due to the fact that the garbage collector needs to run less often, but also due to the fact that just doing the generation, like collecting this type feedback information for these infrequently executed functions was actually costing us work if we weren't going to use that type feedback later. So just not doing that for those um, seldom executed functions was saving us effort. I'd like to change the topic to talking about garbage collection and how garbage collection may or may not have created opportunities to improve memory management in your V8 Lite project. Can you give me an overview for how garbage collection works in JavaScript and what opportunities you saw in improving it when you were working on V8 Lite? Sure. Um, so there's another team that works in garbage collection in the Munich office. They know a lot about this. The main things they've been looking at in the garbage collection team are trying to reduce jank um, caused by garbage collection. So typically, if you're ex executing some code and then you need to do a garbage collection, the, the kind of typical approach you might use is what's called a stop the world garbage collector, where you stop everything executing so that you can trace through all the pointers in the heap, work out what objects are still alive, and then flush out all the dead ones, and that's your garbage collection. But while you're doing that garbage collection, JavaScript execution is paused, and that can cause jank on your web page. So if the JavaScript, if the garbage collection takes a um, couple of tens or hundreds of milliseconds, then that might be visible to the user. So for quite a few years now, the garbage collection team have been working on reducing that jank, and they've done it in various ways. One of the first things they did was make it incremental so the garbage collector could do some work and then go back to executing JavaScript and then do some more work and continue where it left off. And then more recently, they've been making it more and more concurrent. So doing all the garbage collection work on another thread than the one that's executing JavaScript and allow the JavaScript to execute at the same time as uh, the garbage collector is working. So that's one of the main projects the garbage collection team have been working on. We also have worked with them on tuning the garbage collection heuristics to reduce the amount of, of memory on these used by these low-end devices. It's an interesting trade-off there because the more garbage collection you do, the more memory you save, but then the more time you're spending doing garbage collection. So we have these kind of heuristics where if you have a higher-end device, we try and do a bit less garbage collection and the memory might grow a bit larger, but then your experience is probably going to be better because it's not doing that garbage collection all the time. Whereas on lower-end devices, we tune it more aggressively to do more um, aggressive garbage collections more often and keep your memory within budget. 
Well, moving from a stop the world garbage collector to a, I guess, a gradual dynamic garbage collector sounds like a really complicated refactoring, but I guess I would have to talk to somebody on on the garbage collection team to to learn more about that. So if we zoom out, what are the results of the Project Light, the V8 Light efforts? Sure. So the result we got in the end was that we, over the course of a couple of Chrome releases, we reduced V8's heap size by about 20%. So that's a couple of megabytes on typical mobile pages and probably tens of megabytes on desktop pages. And we did it without um, regressing performance. So you, your Chrome browser running right now will be running our V8 Lite optimizations. And is this particularly important for low-end devices? Or am I going to feel this on you know a top-end Pixel device? Yeah, so it's definitely more important on the low-end devices, and that's why we started there. I think you would possibly see it, feel it slightly on the higher-end devices, where um, the examples would be if we, we managed to keep tabs open in the background for a bit longer. So if you're switching between your tabs, then they're still available. Particularly on desktop, if you have hundreds of tabs, then the savings kind of multiply up and you might be able to now have 20 more tabs um, without running out of memory or without swapping in the background and slowing down your whole system. So yeah, if, if you're using all that memory, this can definitely help. Even if you're not, we saw those reductions in garbage collection time, so that could lead to having a slightly less janky experience on the web. You'd see less, um, less stutters happening if garbage collection ends up running on the, on the main thread. What are the areas for significant improvements that you still see in memory footprint for V8? So one of the other more recent projects that have just landed is a project called Pointer Compression, which is a really interesting project in itself. And what we did there um, was compressing the pointers in the V8 heap from 64-bit values on your 64-bit machine down to 32-bit values and since V8's heap typically has a lot of these pointers, um, about 70% of the heap is these pointer types, this has a dramatic reduction in, in memory usage as well. So we just landed that in M80, which should be Chrome stable right now. And that reduced V8's heap by another 40% over and above the V8 light savings. So this year we've had really significant uh, reductions in memory usage. Going forward, I think there's always things we can do to, to optimize the, the data that we store for metadata and things like that. Um, we'll probably start looking a bit more other things like, like responsiveness and execution time for a while, um, and then um, come back and have another look at memory usage. But there's there's always new things to, to reduce and always new things that pop up as the, the top memory users in VAC. We've been talking about V8 in the context of the Chrome browser, but V8 also runs Node.js. Does V8 Lite improve the performance of Node.js? It's it certainly enabled on, on Node.js, um, the optimizations that I was mentioning. I think the, the behaviors are sometimes slightly different on, on Node.js, but I think the benefits can probably be seen uh, in similar ways um, for functions that are not very often executed. And that's where we'll get the most savings. So it depends really on the 
on the application itself and how that application is structured. And I think the, the times we would see this most often is um, in the, the more long-running Node.js um, systems where you might end up being able to save a lot more memory. So yeah, I think depending on the applications, this could definitely save, certainly save memory usage on these Node.js applications, which could save users money if they're using cloud services. What are you personally working on today? Are you still on the V8 team working on memory improvements or have you switched to something else? Yeah, I'm still on the V8 team. So there's a team of us here in London that are looking at, we've switched to looking at responsiveness and execution time of JavaScript code. And what we're looking at is actually a new middle tier compiler. So when I mentioned the compilation pipeline earlier, I talked about Ignition being the bytecode interpreter and TurboFan being the optimizing compiler. And we think there's a space in the middle there for functions that are not quite as hot, hot enough to be executed by TurboFan, but could do with some, some optimization. And so we're building an, a mid-tier compiler, we're calling it TurboProp at the moment, um, which takes some of the components of the TurboFan optimizing compiler and strips them down um, to make a much a compiler that can generate code faster, but the code that it generates might not be quite as optimal as the optimizing compiler is. And by using that, we should be able to optimize more code with this, this kind of leaner optimizing compiler and do it earlier. And then if that code gets even hotter, then we can tear it up again to the fully optimizing turbo fan. So we're hoping this can reduce JavaScript execution time by maybe up to 10% on typical websites. I have a few questions about the future. How will WebAssembly change the design of V8? So WebAssembly has, I guess, already changed the design of V8 in some ways. It operates on slightly different heap. The memory that WebAssembly functions are able to operate on typically are not in this V8 memory managed heap, this garbage collected heap. They're separate kind of linear arrays of memory. But one interesting thing that might be coming in the future is garbage collected objects in WebAssembly. And this is really to allow WebAssembly to support more dynamic languages. It's, it's kind of focused very much on C++ at the moment, but um, it would be interesting to have other dynamic languages compile to WebAssembly. And to do that, it would be good if you didn't need to compile the whole runtime for that other language onto WebAssembly, but you could use some parts of the V8 runtime system itself. And I think the, the garbage collected objects would be an interesting um, project that could bring that, where you have these objects that are managed by V8's garbage collector, but can be operated on by WebAssembly code, um, which could be running a, a different dynamic language. How do you think browsers will work differently in five years? It's a good question. I think the I mean, we've seen the, the, the move to mobile. I think it's going to continue being more of that type of approach where we might even see websites being more dynamic, being able to kind of view something and throw it up onto, onto a desktop machine. And this boundary between mobile and desktop being maybe less, um, less of a thing and having these websites able to scale more dynamically between um, a kind of mobile experience and a desktop experience. It would also be interesting to see if, if websites kind of become more componentized, maybe um, different websites working together in a more app-like manner. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the web is um, 
having this kind of open ecosystem that different companies can all interact in and maybe work together or, or um, bring the best parts of their services together, which is something that the web can provide. Other platforms maybe can. All right. Well, Ross, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and thanks for coming on the show to discuss V8 Lite. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been great to chat too. you.